It's about qualifying, arguably, who is going to be a good tenant and who's a bad tenant. It can sometimes be subjective, but what I'm really looking for in tenant placement, when we're doing our reference checks, don't believe everything someone tells you just because they're the property manager that you're getting that rental check from. Inspections are really important to allow us to see property damages before they occur, if they're going to occur, and we can obviously instruct tenants to try and mitigate that damage. Welcome to Perth Property Insider, where you will learn how to grow your wealth and improve your life using Perth Property. Our show is brought to you by Investors Edge Real Estate, the highly rated and award-winning property management, sales and buyers agency servicing the whole of Perth. Now, here's your host, Jared Mann. G'day, Dwayne. Thanks for joining us today. I'm excited to get stuck into how to help people manage and mitigate their property investment risks. Thanks for joining us. Oh, you're welcome, mate. Glad to be here. So people get very excited about the front end before they buy a property, but they don't always look through to how's it going to be with the ongoing management. And of course, now with us um, managing so many properties and having done this 15 odd years, the bad things that can happen, haven't we? And and we've put a lot of things in place to minimise those one percenters because even uh, a 1% chance for an investor that doesn't have their contingencies or doesn't have the right insurances or other things in place, it could be potentially completely derailing for them, couldn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the biggest one I think I see uh, quite a lot is particularly when a tenant doesn't pay their rent is that the owner doesn't have any cash flow. <laughs> And they're unable to make their mortgage payments, they can't make repairs to the property. And usually when a tenant doesn't pay their rent, it's a bit of a spiral there, you know. Um, it's not just not payment rent. You've got things like property damage or cleaning that comes with it, going to courts. And so I think that's probably the biggest one we've seen um, time and time again. And I think that's why one of the things that, we're, uh, you know, we like to speak to clients about is having some cash ready, just as a contingency, like you said. Yeah, that makes sense. So... Tell us a bit about your experience over the years and what you're drawing on as far as the team goes. Yeah, look, I mean, we've seen quite a lot of different things. Uh, I think it's been 11 years or so that I've been here now and the team has been managing properties. And I think one of the other ones, property damage, you know, how do we mitigate the risk on that? What do we do to try and minimise the damage to the property, whether that's through wear and tear or, you know, intentional damage? But I think also looking at sort of your legislation compliance, smoke alarms, RCDs, security requirements, pool fencing, these are all things that I think need to be taken into consideration and, you know, some plans put into place so that you can cover off some of that risk. I guess with all risks, there's, you know, the degree of severity when we think about our risk analysis, you know, how severe would it be if it happened? And then there's the probability of that happening. So even if it's a small chance of it happening, but a high severity, you know, we still need to think about it and cater it off. And then for the more frequent ones that occur that might be a lower severity, you know, they're going to happen potentially more often. So, you know, worth covering off as well. Yeah, precisely. I think it's worth having an idea of what sort of risk you're stepping into when you're purchasing a property investment, as you mentioned earlier. You know, it's not all just shiny and perfect. There are going to be little dips along the way and you've just got to make sure those dips are counted for. So what are some of the things you think about when we're looking to take on a new property management client? Because I know we want to try to get things up to an overall standard and make sure our clients are protected on the front end when they're coming in. So what are some of the things you look for? Well, I mean, there's really 
I guess, two parts of that. The first one's at the property, right? So when we're talking about at the property, we're looking for things like your compliance, your smoke alarms, your RCDs, your security requirements, you know, your window locks, door locks, front porch lights, your pool fences and getting a pool fencing certificate, getting, you know, electrical safety certificate as well, just to make sure everything's up to scratch there. But also looking for a bit more uh, concerning items with regard to, say, rotting pergolas. You know, you purchased a property, you thought you the goal was okay, your building inspector didn't pick it up, or it's a property you've lived in for 20 years, didn't realize the slats were rotting on your pergola. You know, there's a risk of that coming down on someone. And of course, you know, that's the sort of stuff that we're looking for when we inspect the property. But if you take a step back and look at what you can put in play, of course, you know, your building insurances, your landlord insurances are there to try and mitigate some of that risk and, you know, take some of the risk away from you as well. And it's always surprised me that other managers don't do a, insist on getting an electrical compliance certificate and they just sort of assume that everything is electrically okay. And that's a real red flag for me. Some of our newer owners are like, oh, you know, I've had the property 10 years. No one's ever asked me for this. So our standards are a fair bit higher than the average, but for good reason as well, because we've seen what happens. You don't want questions getting asked later when a tenant's electrocuted themselves. You want to be asking, you know, is this compliant before that happens? And hopefully, if it is compliant, it won't happen, Jared. And of course, very different ages of properties and uh, types of properties are going to carry extra risk too. So, is there anything that comes to mind or red flags you can think of when we might be dealing with an older property? Because there's it's it's had a lot more time for for issues to come about, hasn't it? Well, yeah. I mean, you know, you'd be Big structural cracks. And I said before, pergolas, you know, the wood rots and you know, I've seen slats fall down in a storm. But what, what we're looking for, um, I guess, is sort of the older property is looking for asbestos as well. It is it is a real risk. I mean, not a risk that many worry about today, but it's a risk that is posed for 30, 40 years future you, right? So if there's any sort of asbestos at the property, we do try and let tenants be aware of that. So if they do see cracking or there's damage to asbestos, we can get that repaired straight away. But there is a certain risk elevated with older properties because things wear down, things break down and just want to make sure those things are okay. One of the other things we've noticed as well is the uneven paving with older properties as, you know, your soap wells start to buckle and, you know, you've got this paving that now is a bit wavy. Most people walk past it, not a problem, but there is a risk involved if you've got someone walking past, tripping, falling over, there may be a potential insurance claim there on your hands as well. So we try and eliminate what we see. If not else, we advise the owner and let them know of that. But usually our owners take the right action, get it fixed. Well, some other things that come to mind is like often the building codes change over time and the current codes are a lot more safe. So when you consider things like staircases and balustrading and balconies and things can have changed a lot over time too. And if a building inspector, when you buy it, especially raises some of these compliance things, there probably isn't a requirement for the seller to to do them. But when you become aware of them and they're a potential risk or a safety hazard that's flagged in your building inspection report, we always try to make use of that information that we're getting from the inspector and decide with our owner, you know, is it going to be, should we be doing something to mitigate this and and make an informed decision around it. The other thing that comes to mind is, uh, you know, in the older houses especially, they contain a lot more wood. Is There's obviously that potential for termite attacks. So do you have a plan and have you at least thought about getting your 
termite barrier and your regular treatments. And there's a lot of other, I guess, challenges that come with the older properties. So that, that's part and parcel. I mean, just allow a bit of extra money per year to be fixing these things as they come up. So when it comes to actually protecting yourself with insurance, what sort of role does that play? And what do you sort of ask for and check for on the front end when you're chatting to clients? Do you have an insurance broker? No, no, no. Um, look, we, we obviously can't give advice around insurances in that way. But I think in my experience, the the time we use insurance most is when there's a bad tenant, right? There's been damage to the home. There's been non-payment rent. I, I believe that'd be close to 80, 90% of the claims that we do if ever there is a, if ever there is one. So I would recommend most investors look at that landlord insurance policy because it does cover that non-payment rent. It does cover property damage caused by a tenant. And I think it's important to look into that to minimize your risk as well. Of course, building insurance, most mortgage um, mortgages require you have some level of building insurance in play, but you know it's not very often touch wood. We've seen a flood occur at a property that severe, which requires um, building insurance. But the other things to sort of speak to the clients about on the upfront to make sure that they're at least going through and checking these things out and trying to set themselves up to minimize as much of that risk as possible. Yeah, that makes sense. And we've seen over the years um, a big difference in terms of what landlord insurers pay and cover. And we certainly can't get into recommending specific ones, but I'd definitely look to find a specialist landlord insurer because the difference in cost is often, you know, very similar, but what they actually cover can be vastly different. So some of them charge an excess for every single item that you're claiming. So by the time you add an excess on to every item, it ends up not even being worth making a claim. Whereas others handle all the items with just one excess potentially. And and then some of them don't have an excess on certain types of claims as part of, you know, what you might be claiming too. So yeah. And one of the things I have noticed in my own experience is I've had to put only a handful of landlord insurance claims in where tenants haven't paid rent. And actually in one case, this was a client who was self-managing. Tenants were very, very, very far behind in rent and asked for my help. So when I then eventually asked the question about that landlord insurance, he said that he had some. And it was with a company that we would all know. I'm not mentioning names. But at that time, the maximum loss of rent cover was only $3,000. Now for a $600 a week property, that's only five weeks of rent. Okay. I've had other companies pay up in the past, you know, you'd have to check the PDS, of course, but in the past, it paid out up to 18 weeks worth of lost rent. So that's a huge difference. And I think the premiums, as Jared, you mentioned just a moment ago, they weren't too dissimilar. You know, I think it was a few dollars a year difference when I looked at the premiums myself. So, you know, moral of the story, go back and read the PDS, though no one really wants to do it. Make sure you do check and get the right cover for you. Probably best not to be buying your insurance at the checkout aisle when you're doing the food shopping either, but, you know, by all means, do your own research. (laughs) So when it comes to actually making sure you comply with various laws, what are some of the things to think about here? Because it's changing all the time, isn't it? And it can be hard to stay on top of everything, and especially if you're a self-managing landlord. Well, I think the first one that gets it, Larry, is that building compliance that you mentioned and as the code changes over time. But where I really focus and what we re- what I really look at when I'm going through is more so around that rental compliance. And so, you know, smoke alarms, RCDs, actually minimum, sec- um, minimum electrical compliance, right? Then you've got your minimum security requirements of all your doors must have deadlocks, your windows must have lock, your front porch must have a light. These are things that need to be done as part of the legal compliance slide. And- 
look, these are things that, you know, you can't really, can't really shortcut. You just got to do it. One of the other things I've also noticed, and, you know, it is a risk that has happened to people out there. You know, your blind cords, when you pull your blind cords down, I mean, they look like they're pretty high, but when you pull up those Venetians, that cord gets really long and it ends up looping up at the bottom. There is a risk of either children or pets getting choked up and unfortunately passing away because of that. So one of the requirements is that needs to be secured and it needs to be secured. I believe it's 1.6 meters off the floor. Make sure you do read the legislation or I can send you a copy of it to make sure you're clear off. But yeah, you need to make sure those cords are secured to minimize any risks posed to young children or pets. That makes sense. So when it comes to actually you've found a tenant, you're getting them to enter into a lease. Do do we just use any old lease and chuck it together or is there some things that you know, could be added in there to, there's a lot of gray areas in the Residential Tenancies Act and, and, you know, often tenants aren't clear as to where something falls. So what do we do in that area? Yeah. So, I mean, the lease agreement, I think it's the 41AA needs to be used by everyone. That's the standard lease agreement. And part A and B, you can't really change too much in there. You can just fill out the form. What I find is part C is where you can add those special conditions, right? Terms and agreements specific to that lease. And so we've got a list of about 27, 28 conditions now in our lease agreement that just, I guess, clear up some of that gray. You know, who looks after the verge on the property? Is that the council? Because I don't think I've ever seen a council come out and mow the lawns on the verge. What about protecting floors underneath um, office chairs and dining sets when they're positioned on jar floors? We really need to look at how we can go about writing conditions in there to educate the tenant, let them understand how to maintain this property and minimize that risk of property damage to the property and in turn, you know, having less wear and tear over a period of time. We obviously have outstanding conditions, but I um, every day uh, coming to me, the licensee, I have special conditions that are tailored to individual properties. You can't just go chucking any condition in here too. Like if it contravenes the Residential Tenancies Act, the, the Residential Tenancies Act stands and you can't contract out conditions and, and make them invalid. But, you know, a lot of other conditions we write in when it comes to gardening, when it comes to pool maintenance, and you might sort of think, oh, well, you know, what's is are they really that important? But what we do know is that, when there's a, a grey area, when there's a loophole, that's what leads to conflict, leads to content, contention and makes things a lot more difficult and stressful later on. And if these things also build up over time, small things can become much bigger things. So definitely worth case by case looking at how we can fill those gaps as well. So uh, one of the things that we pride ourselves in with the team is communication and we've got you know real core value of um, proactive communication with all of our team. How does that actually go about, you know, reducing risk or helping uh, mitigate things? Look, the first thing that comes to mind for me is, you know, when we're conducting a routine inspection, we're actually going to go through and check and look for these items. And if we see it, we'll make a note in the report, give the landlords a call and advise them of a method to solve that problem. Okay. So that's the first thing that comes to mind to try and keep that risk at bay. But other things like following up, I mean, it's just a really simple thing, but if there's a maintenance issue of a bowling ceiling and you can see it progressively getting worse, consistently following up with the landlord, not leaving the ball in the court of the landlord, hoping that they're going to come back to you because, you know, when that comes down, it's a really big stress out for everyone, not just the tenant, not for the owner, everyone, even me. 
So at the end of the day, we just want to keep the owners informed and that way they can make better decisions moving forward as well. Well, I think it also comes back to how we track maintenance and every single item's inputted into our system with, and we track, you know, how long it's been sitting at various stages and we can then see if something's stuck around for too long and see who's the the cause of that stuck <laughs> is it the tradesperson that hasn't got out when it was a serious thing that we needed attended to quickly is it the tenant not giving them access when we needed that really quickly or is it the owner not getting back to us or is it on us because we haven't found and issued the work orders and got the right person to sent out to attend yet so it's really key. Again, small things there become really big things. Imagine if something's just completely, you know, not just delayed, but left, as you said, 12 months, 24 months, things get a lot worse. So, what might have been a simple ceiling uh, refixing can become a ceilings down, you know, much larger job in, in the case of your example where. So, yeah. Now, I think the other thing that sort of comes to mind as well is, um, as I mentioned earlier, non-payment of rent, you know, you've still got to pay your mortgage. There's a risk associated with that. So I think what we like to do is allow our owners, if a tenant ever does fall behind, let them know. Let them know in advance so that they know that this week they might have to try and put a few dollars away towards the mortgage if the tenants don't pay. But just keeping the tenants um, on top of paying their rent is usually quite simple. But when it doesn't happen, at least the owners are made aware and then they can start to react to what's actually happening. And we've seen a huge difference in with our communication being completely on point and to a large extent automated so that we always let tenants know at day one, day two, we increase the severity of the sort of the the ways that we tell them that their rent's rent's late. We let them know the consequences and the repercussions if it's not paid. And then we issue a breach at day three. You You know, always, unless there's a exception, you know, made. And they, the tenants said no, that we're follow, going to follow our process, that it's not personal. The owners are kept in in the loop at every step along the way. And we've just seen, you know, our arrears rate become considerably less over the years of, you know, improving this process. So, we know it's not a normal thing because we just assume everyone else manages things the same, but they don't. So, Well, I mean, leading to that example, I had a client, um, a client now who... When he was looking at changing managers, I think the tenant was six or seven weeks behind in rent and the owner didn't even know about it. And in fact, that the reason he knew was because his mortgage apparently defaulted on the payment. You know, his, his account must have been running quite low to you know make sure the rent comes in to pay the mortgage, right? And that was the way he found out. So, you know, to me, this could have been avoided if the tenant was, you know, followed up earlier and the owner was made aware earlier money could have been tipped in so that that can continue to be paid no stress so yeah i think communication is super important uh, part of part of our job so take us into the tenant screening process now because really if we get the right tenant this is going to solve you know probably 99 percent of problems and that's why we've spent so much time and effort making this our number one focus and going into a lot of deeper more deeper areas and being a lot more scrutinizing and it's only flowed through to to reduce all of those other instances of problems so tell us take us through what you know landlords should be thinking about here or well 
I'll go through every single bit, Jared. You know, there's a lot of points that we check, so I'll touch on some of the key ones that we look for. Um, and I think that's why a lot of managers, um, sorry, a lot of owners do choose us to be their managers is because we go through and check those things. But let me start by saying tenants are very important to our investment journey, okay? We treat them with respect and we we look after them. And if they're good tenants, you know, even better, we'll look after them even more. But in having said that, it's about qualifying, arguably, who is going to be a good tenant and who's a bad tenant, right? And I know it can sometimes be subjective, but what I'm really looking for in tenant placement, when we're doing our reference checks, don't believe everything someone tells you just because they're the property manager that you're getting that rental check from, okay? Sometimes the way they answer is it speaks volumes. Does that tenant pay rent on time all the time? Uh, Yes. No, send me a tenant ledger. Let me have a look through that. Okay, so we're going to identify if they've got past history of non-payment rent, if they've had breach notices, if there has been that history of underperformance, shall I say, then perhaps they're not the right tenant for our client. Other things that we're doing when we're at the viewing, you know, we're not on TikTok or Snapchat or whatever it is these kids are on these days. We're going to try and meet the people that are coming through and get to know them one-to-one so that the tenants get to know us and we get to know them and see if we can build a relationship and a partnership moving forward too. But what I'm looking for when I'm speaking to these people is that, you know, if they've come in and they're covered in clearly dog fur or cat fur, okay, that's okay. But if I look at the application and they've got no dogs, no pets, you know, nothing on there, there's a red flag for me. Now, it's not a no. They could have, they could be a vet for all I know. But if they're prepared to lie to get the property, what else are they prepared to do? So we're looking for things like that. You know, I've had instances where they said they're a non-smoker on a written application and they've walked in smelling of cigarette smoke. So, you know, what I'm trying to identify is if someone is genuine, honest, great, fantastic, we can put them in, we can work with them. If they're going to be dishonest up front, I'm trying to avoid those because it's just a track record, right? That's just what's going to happen. Yeah, that makes sense. And I guess we're looking through to some of those other inconsistencies that can come up, you know, gaps in their rental history or, you know, other things not matching up with regard to their job, when someone says they're on a certain income, we go and check it. They're not. Just, yeah. What does that tell us? You know, it tells us they either don't know what they get paid or that they've overinflated that. Again, one of those things in isolation might not be a big deal, but if we start seeing these things pop up in lots of different areas, that's going to give us doubt. And we do have what's called a guaranteed tenant, don't we? So, they have to meet a certain criteria across the board in order for us to be willing to guarantee the tenant. And if we do guarantee the tenant, then we will cover the cost to release the property. We'll we'll release the property for free, basically, if we ever had to evict such a tenant. So at least that gives people peace of mind that we're willing to put our own, you know, guarantee on the top of each tenant that we place. And we'll let them know if we're not going to guarantee the tenant, the owner can still go ahead and choose that tenant if they wish, but it'll be more at their own risk. While I'm on this step, I thought I'd just touch on everyone kind of thinks, oh, you know, the rental market's crazy. You know, we're getting 30 people to the viewing. Like surely we must have 20 great applications to award and accept. What's some of the reality out there? And what are you what are you hearing from our property managers? It's really suburban area specific here. You know, um, there's certain areas that are you're getting 30-odd applications in a week and only one might be of quality enough for us to guarantee them. It's not to say the others are no good, 
and they're horrible people. That's not the point at all. But in order for us to ensure that they're going to be able to pay their rent on time, they have to have some level of income or savings. And so, yeah, it depends on really the area that we're looking at. And um, well, also the property type, and and probably even more importantly, I mean, you can you can still have a property in Armadale that is presented well and clean and can attract a, a good tenant. But when the type of property isn't going to attract the type of tenant you want then you're going to have a lot more problems finding them. Yeah, correct. And that's where, you know, as an investor, you do need to put some money aside to continue to maintain the property in a good condition because good properties attract good tenants. And, well, I don't have to say the other ones. So in terms of the doing regular property inspections, why is that important and how does that sort of help to reduce risk as well? Look, I, I did mention a little bit earlier, the inspections are really important to allow us to see property damages before they occur, if they're going to occur. Um, and we can obviously instruct tenants and teach tenants, coach tenants to try and mitigate that damage. Yeah, as simple as putting a rug underneath a dining set, prevent the scratchings of the jarra floors, you know. Um, so it's really important to go through and check these things and make sure that tenants are looking after the asset, but also to look for things that the owner can do to maintain that asset value too. So I've been to a few properties on the first attendance to assess the home. And I've seen weeds that are about 30 centimetres tall growing out of the gutters, tons of these weeds. And I'm thinking to myself, how long have those gutters not been cleaned out for in order for there to be debris enough for these <laughs> weeds to go out of? Or, you know, when we're going to the property, ideally we're checking for these things, we're reporting on them, and they're not only just reporting but following through and actioning them too. Yeah, that makes sense. So any final advice that you'd give to property investors, I guess, to – a lot of this can sort of scramble people's heads and I don't want to make property investment seem like it's all way too hard. It is probably one of the reasons that a lot of people, when they get to one, two properties, they think, oh, this is, a, this is too hard, especially if they haven't got the right team around them. So w- w- what parting thoughts would you leave people with? Look, I, I honestly think you sit out a property manager for this, you know, that's what you're paying them to do, to go and assess it. And when I say a property manager, someone who's skilled, who knows what they're looking for, not any old property manager, someone who's trained, someone who's got the experience to be able to go through and look for these things to mitigate your risk as well. Okay, no worries. Well, I guess uh, it's worth noting that we do manage properties across the whole of Perth and we've got over a thousand now. So if you're listening to this and you do have a property in Perth and you want to chat to our team, um, joins our point of contact. So feel free to reach out and details will be on the show notes or you can get in touch through our website. Thanks, Edith Ryan. Awesome. Just a reminder, the information discussed in this podcast is general in nature. As we don't know your specific situation, you should always seek professional advice before taking any action. For free market reports on your suburb of interest and other helpful resources to grow your wealth, Make sure you join my property investor update at investorshedge.com.au slash join. And finally, make sure you're a member of our Perth Property Investment Facebook group. To be part of the conversation with other like-minded investors, get help to your questions and get a feel for what's going on out there in the market. I'll see you in the group. (laughs) 